Our scripture reading for this morning is going to come from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent them away empty-handed. And he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are the true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. We'll turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Again, Jake read part of this text for us, page 1008. Mark, we're finishing up 11, getting into 12 today. We are in the second week of a study. The greatest week of the greatest life. We're looking at Passion Week of Christ, and we're looking through the Gospel of Mark. We looked at chapter 11 last week as Jesus entered Jerusalem, but we noticed something very different about this event. Jesus had been pretty discreet during his three-year ministry on this earth. Up to this point, he had Days prior to him entering Jerusalem, he had raised Lazarus, which caused no small stir. And all of those excited about this miracle and Jesus' power over death was, was Jesus' entourage as he's entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Jesus didn't quiet the crowd as he had so many times before. And the crowd was prophetically repeating over and over again that Jesus was their deliverer. They were saying, Hosanna, 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 which means save us, save us, save us. And coming in this way, the Lord Jesus is proclaiming openly what he has forbidden until this moment, and that is, I am your king. I am the Messiah. So Jesus, with purpose and intentionality, presents himself as the, as the Messiah, knowing that this is going to provoke these religious leaders to do something drastic and then Jesus does something else he pokes the bear by clearing the temple of the money changers and the vendors 
the religious elite had set up a market in the court of the Gentiles. Pilgrims coming to the temple would exchange money so they could pay the temple tax in the proper currency, and they would also buy animals to sacrifice so they wouldn't have to carry them on their long journey into Jerusalem. But in the court of the Gentiles, there was no worship. There was no prayer. Just business to pad the religious leaders' pockets. By driving them out of the temple, Jesus is condemning their worship. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So Jesus is saying your temple worship is corrupt, and it's corrupt because the leadership of the temple was corrupt. And so this deliberate act of condemning their temple worship was the beginning of the end of, of the temple. In fact, if you think about it, as he drove out the money changers and the vendors, there were some people there that came to celebrate the Passover who couldn't make a sacrifice that day. But that's okay because we know that the true Passover lamb in just a few days, we'll make the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. You think about when Jesus was put on a cross, what happened at the temple? Something miraculous. Do you remember? Remember the, the veil that separated the one part of the temple with the Holy of Holies? It was, it was split in two. And if you think about it even more, 35 years after this event... We know that the temple was completely and utterly destroyed, putting an end to the old covenant sacrificial practices. So Jesus enters the city on Palm Sunday, and Monday he clears the temple, and we pick up on Tuesday in our text. Look at chapter 11, verse 27. Let's read that together. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Keep in mind, the day before he cleared the temple, verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father, we recognize our need for you this morning. I, as a preacher, I need your help to teach the text clearly. And we all need your help to understand the implications of this text. Father, the lost that are here, whether they be children or students or adults, they need you to open their eyes and ears to see their sin and to see Christ. Show us Christ through the preaching of your word so you can be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, a couple points from our text. We're going to look at this text I just read, and we're going to get into chapter 12. But the first point from our text this morning is the religious leaders refuse to submit to Jesus' authority as they fear man rather than God. So it's Tuesday. Jesus returns to the temple, and what you thought would naturally happen did indeed happen. The chief priests, the religious leaders who had set up the market in the temple, they come and question Jesus, and they said something that we might would say, well, who do you think you are? Who gave you authority to do such a thing? Religious leaders, I can imagine them saying, we gave permission to these vendors and money changers to set up in the court of the Gentiles. Who are you to drive them out? And on top of that, you called us robbers and thieves. It's interesting when Jesus ran out everyone in the temple, we don't have any, anything recorded that someone tried to stop it or someone stood in his way. Isn't that amazing? And it, it brought to mind when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth. You remember he was teaching and preaching and people didn't like what he was saying and they were going to throw him off a cliff and there was a mob. And what did Jesus do? Walk right through the mob and no one laid a hand upon him. Jesus drove out the money changers. He drove out the vendors, and no one stopped them. But here a day later, they're asking him, who do you think you are? And so Jesus told them that he would answer that question if they would answer his. And so Jesus asked them a really simple question. And what he was asking was, John the Baptist, tell me, was he legit or not? Jesus caught them in a predicament, didn't he? They knew that if they say that John was commissioned by God to carry out his ministry, then Jesus will ask him, well, why don't they believe in him? Since John the Baptist, his ministry, all of his ministry was, was, was all about saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Remember John seeing Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. Hey, hey, behold, look. Jesus, here's the Messiah, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That was John's ministry. If they say, no, John's legit, then Jesus is going to say, well, why don't you believe what he's pointing towards? Why don't you believe in me? That was John's ministry. Prepare people for Jesus. If they say that John was not commissioned by God, then the people who held John as a prophet would turn on them. So they did what everyone who lives for the praise of man would do. They didn't answer at all. They said, well, we don't know. So Jesus told them that neither would he answer their question. See, the religious leaders are not really very good theologians. They're more like pragmatists. Whatever works for them, that's what they do. But if you think about it, Jesus really had answered their question. If John was commissioned by God and John pointed to Jesus as the Christ, then Jesus was doing all he did by the authority of God. God gave me authority, Jesus is saying. And it's not that the religious leaders lacked information about who Jesus was, but what were they doing? They were rebelling against the Lord. They're more about, worried about what people thought of them than what God thought of them. 
the religious leaders were people pleasers, while Jesus of Nazareth, he was a God the Father pleaser. So Jesus exposes these religious leaders' true colors. The religious leaders feared men, but Jesus, the ultimate authority, feared no one. Look, In fact, look, look over at verse 14 of chapter 12. We're going to read this in just a moment. I want to read it here. There's some religious leaders, they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we know that you're true and you don't care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, this is flattery. We'll get to this in just a second. But that was Jesus. This, even though they're flattering Jesus, they might not have fully believed it, but what they just said was true. Jesus feared no one. And so a parable is told by Jesus to further make his point that Jesus did have authority. And, and Jake read that for us in chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. And it's a parable about the tenants. And when the harvest came, the unfaithful tenants treated the landowner with disdain, even going so far to kill those of his servants who were sent to represent him. When the master sent his own son, the tenants murdered him, hoping to steal the son's inheritance for themselves. And in this parable, what Jesus is doing, he's actually borrowing from Isaiah chapter 5. There's a parable there. There's a vineyard spoken about, and the vineyard in, in this Isaiah 5 passage is Israel, and Israel has not been productive. And so what Jesus is doing, he's borrowing from that Old Testament parable. But it's not the vineyard that's being condemned, but the, the tenants, the vine growers, the sharecroppers, if you will, who hold control over the vineyard. We have to remember what the, what's the initial issue here that Jesus is addressing. He's trying to answer the question, who gave you authority to do these things? And Jesus is telling this parable to, to verify that he did have authority. His authority comes from the Father. He has authority because he is the son, the heir to the vineyard. They're the sharecroppers who are responsible for raising the crops and then bringing a portion of that to the master who owned the vineyard. But they've been unfaithful in their obligations, haven't they? Verse 10, 11, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. And, and this psalm speaks in its context of the nation of Israel. As the nations of the world sought to build their empires, they regarded the nation of Israel as a rock that's just in the way. And Jesus applies this this text, this psalm, to himself. He points out that in the same way Israel has been rejected in the past, so now the leaders of the nation of Israel are themselves going to pass a similar judgment upon him, the Messiah. They took this little Galilean rabbi, and they think he's merely in the way, a stone to be rejected and cast aside. But what they don't realize is that this stone is to become the foundation stone, the cornerstone for God's covenant people. The builders, in verse 10 11, they are the same as the vine dressers, the sharecroppers. Their rejection of the stone is parallel with the slaying of the sun. The cornerstone is Jesus who has all authority. 
But the religious leaders, they reject his authority. Remember what we're doing here in the, in the, in the big picture over the next month. We're looking at the greatest week of the greatest life as Jesus enters Jerusalem on his way to becoming the Passover lamb who was slain so that the wrath of the Father could pass over those who trusted in him. And it's, it's interesting, he tells this parable, and begin, in the beginning of his ministry, as he tells parables, what the parables do is they conceal truth from the hard-hearted. Remember, Jesus is always saying, those who have ears, let them hear. It conceals truth from the hard-hearted, but it reveals truth to those who want to know truth. You see, time and time again, Jesus teaching in parables, and disciples, people in the crowds just going, ah, what is he talking about? I don't get it. I don't get what this guy is saying. But what do the disciples do? They draw near to Jesus and say, Jesus, explain it to us, explain it to us. And Jesus gives them an explanation. But what's interesting here is he tells this parable at the end of his ministry, but this parable isn't to conceal truth. This parable is, is, is taught to reveal the heart of the obstinate religious leaders. So it's not something where they're like, ah, I'm not real sure what he's talking about. Look at verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. There you go, the fear of man again, right? For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. They leave to go and plot and plan. How are we going to arrest this guy? They understood the, the parable. It was, it was directed very pointedly at them. You've been unfaithful. You failed to submit to the landowner, the master. The religious leaders, they reject Jesus' authority. And so what do they do? They begin to attack Jesus. They begin to test him. And we see these tests, these attacks in verse 13 and following. And Jake read for us this first one. And this leads to our second point. Jesus passes each test with flying colors. They want to test him. They want to make a fool of him. They want to somehow make him trip over his own words. Make him look foolish in front of all the people. In this first test, there's a, a group of men. Some are Pharisees and some are Herodians. They tag team against Jesus in order to test him. And What's interesting is these Herodians and these Pharisees, they didn't get along. They didn't mix well in their culture. The Pharisees would be considered the conservatives. They held closely to the law. They opposed Roman opposition or Roman authority. They opposed it. But the Herodians, they accepted Herod, hence the name Herodians. They, they embraced Herod's rule. They embraced Rome's rule. They were the liberals of the day. They wanted big government. So you have the conservatives, you have the liberals. But what's interesting, they collaborated together, and it shows the seriousness of the threat they perceived Jews to be. These two groups of folks, they didn't mix. But yet you see them working together to try to test and, and tempt and, and trick Jesus. In verse 14, they use flattery, and it's... Anytime someone tries to flatter you, that's a the sign things aren't going to go well with this conversation. Proverbs 26, 28. 
A lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Some parallelism there. A lying tongue, someone's a flatterer, usually is a liar too. And they tell them, they know that Jesus isn't partial. We read that text a few moments ago. He's not swayed by appearances. Now, judges in Israel, what they would do oftentimes is they would have the, uh, the defendants in a case, they would have them put coverings over their head. And they would sit there in the trial or here in the case and they would have head coverings on where you couldn't recognize who they were. Why? Because they didn't want to be biased. So they're telling Jesus in verse 14, we know you're, you're partial. You don't care what people think. You're just. You're not swayed by men. It doesn't matter who it is, friend or foe. You're going to give them the goods. You're going to teach them truth. You're not going to be partial. And then they ask a, a question, and, and the question contradicts all the flattery they just gave. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, they're not asking because they really want to know. They're not honest skeptics. They didn't want to know the truth. And what they're expecting Jesus to do is to stutter and stammer and get red-faced and, and get stumped by this question. And it seems maybe at first glance Jesus is in a no-win situation. No matter how he answers, someone's going to be upset. If he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then the Romans will have a reason to arrest him. If he says yes, and the people say, you're a traitor. So how did Jesus answer? Verse 15, he calls them out. He wisely answers that they were to obey the civil authorities by paying taxes, and throughout the New Testament, we see that. God ordained that we submit to our governor authorities. Getting my taxes done this week. We see this throughout the New Testament. Romans 13, 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. We have to obey governing authorities. But Jesus also said, give to God what he deserves as well. Peter and John there have been arrested in Acts 5, 29. The authorities were trying to get them not to preach the gospel Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men. And so with this one simple statement, what happens, Jesus puts everything in proper perspective. He puts Caesar in his place, but then he placed God where he rightly deserves. And then what's the result? Verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, and they all marveled at him. In other words, jaw drop there in all. We thought we had them. This is going to get them. And they just, they're in awe and they leave shaking their heads. What an answer. So we have the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they oppose Jesus, they question about his authority, and they leave embarrassed. The Herodians, the Pharisees up next, and Jesus shut them up. Jesus has authority and it shows. Now it's the Sadducees' turn. Let's look at verse 18. Through 27. Let's read this together. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, some of you right there are thinking, thinking about your brother-in-law thinking, eh, I don't really, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so the Sadducees turned to test Jesus, and they asked Jesus an, an absurd question that they probably used to argue against a bodily resurrection. See, the Sadducees didn't believe in many things. They believed in they only believed in the, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Torah, and they didn't they didn't hold that the other scriptures were inspired. They didn't believe in demons and angels and miracles or, or an afterlife. They, so if that's the case, they're not looking for a future Messiah, and they rejected any notion of a, a future bodily resurrection. They were annihilationists, if you will, which means that when, you're, when you die physically, then your soul dies with it. And so these Sadducees asked a question that they didn't want to know the answer to. Again, it's, it's, they're, not a, they're not an honest skeptic. It's kind of like when people, sometimes non-believers who are opposed to the scriptures, opposed to Christianity, they'll ask questions like, well, who was Cain's wife? You know, they try to come up with some off-the-wall question that we don't have an answer to. So this absurd scenario is a woman loses her husband and her brother-in-law was commanded to marry her. That's the Leverite marriage um, covenant. There is, um, the Old Testament speaks of this in Deuteronomy chapter 25. If, if, if a woman is widowed and she didn't have a son and he has a brother, then he's to take her as his wife so that she could have a son and give him her husband's name. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, it teaches about that. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this was a Leverite marriage. And so they come up with this situation to try to make Jesus stutter and stammer and look stupid, but Jesus answers them in verse 24. And he says, What you're supposed to know, what you should know quite clearly, you know not at all. So he answers them, number one, there is a resurrection. In fact, up to this point, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, three times in just the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has spoken of his own future 
resurrection. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. And also chapter 10, verse 34. And then he says there won't be marriage as we know it in the afterlife. Some of you are saddened by that. Some of you might be not so much. We will be like the angels. It says that you'll be like the angels, which is, is, is kind of interesting. What is that referring to? Probably my, my thoughts on that would be that there's no procreation and there is, um, there's an eternality to life. You'll never die. There's other thoughts on that. Verse 26, 27. What he does is he takes them. To answer their question, he takes them to the, the portion of Scripture that they hold tightly to. He quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, because much of the, the, the prophets, the writings, they don't believe God's Word. So he takes them to Exodus. And he quotes this passage from Moses when he's at the burning bush. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In order for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to still exist, there must be a resurrection. So Jesus, using the scriptures, the law, embarrasses the Sadducees and tells them, you are quite wrong. And that's the main point. You're quite wrong. And there's other texts we could look at. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Um, Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. Where did he take him to, right? There has to be this future resurrection, eternal life. Um, Paul, of course, in the New Testament, we have a lot of clear teachings about a future bodily resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, Paul says it will be raised imperishable. So this eternal life will be experienced by not just a person in soul only, but body and soul, the whole person. We don't have time, but there's several other conflicts that take place here. Five in all. Once Jesus entered into Jerusalem, there's five conversation conflicts that he has with the religious leaders. Look at verse 34. After these last of these conflicts, he's answering a man. He answered wisely. He'd been in conversation with a, maybe a, an honest skeptic. One of the scribes was asking him questions, and he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And look at the last part of verse 34. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. No one tried to trap him again. No one tried to stump him. Because Jesus, every time, would answer with authority. And we could talk more about these things, the, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. We know there's going to be a, a, a resurrection for those who trust the Lord. But the point of these events being recorded is that Jesus is Lord. 
he has authority and the religious leaders of his day would not bow the knee to his authority. In fact, they oppose him. So we look at these conflicts and these conversations and we say, well, what do we, what do, we do with this? How do we apply this text? And, and you could say s- several things, many ways to apply this personally. We could think about the, the conversation with the Pharisee and the Herodian. Do we give to Caesar what is his? Yeah, you do. We, we, we We have a governing, we have governing authorities. And so what do we do? We yield to those and we obey the governing authorities God's put us over. Put, put over. So we, I'm doing my taxes this week. Right? But then we give to God what is God's. Right? Ultimately, we obey the Lord. We could talk about the resurrection. We should have hope, right? That there is one day we'll be with the Lord, not just our souls, but body and soul. And we'll be with him forever. There is an afterlife, an eternal life, and we ought to glory in that, and we ought to rejoice in that, and that should encourage us. But I think primarily, by way of application today, as we look at this text, we have to think about the religious leaders and how they consider themselves the ultimate authority. I mean, think about it. You have this temple, and they, they themselves set up this business venture in the court of the Gentiles. When Jesus cast them out, they come and ask him, well, who gave you this right? The religious leaders, they've rejected the testimony of the law, the prophets, John the Baptist. They made themselves the authority and I think we do that today as well why do so many in our culture so many of our neighbors and family members and friends why do they reject Jesus as their Messiah and Savior because they place themselves above the authority of the Word of God. They, they trust their own reasonings rather than divine revelation. The stone which be, was to be rejected by the builders was also destined to become the chief cornerstone. The rejected stone, Jesus the Messiah, is not only rejected by the religious elite, But these events are going to motivate these religious leaders to crucify the Son, which will in turn fulfill prophecy about Him. But we know that the Father will raise Him from the dead and crown Him King. And as we look at this text, thinking about the last week of Jesus' life, We have to remember what is the goal of these gospel writers. It's to present Jesus as King, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that we should yield to and submit to. The text today in chapter 11 and 12 of Mark is 
attempting to show us that Jesus has authority. And the religious leaders, their unwillingness to submit to his authority is, is quite evident. They weren't convinced that he had authority. And so the, the, the question for us today is, do you, are you convinced that he has authority? Does Jesus have the final say? Is he your ultimate authority? I remember as a 17-year-old boy, I was, I brought under conviction of my sin. I realized my entire life I had, was deceived thinking I was a believer. And if you ask me if I knew the Lord, if I was a Christian, I would say, well, of course. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course I believe in Christ. Of course Jesus came and he lived on this earth and he died for me, a sinner. Of course I trust Jesus. Of course I'm going to heaven. And as a 17-year-old boy, I remember God opened up my eyes and ears to see that that I'd been deceived. And although I, I'd say I love the Lord and I was going to be in heaven with Jesus one day, there's no evidence in my life that he was my authority. And so after I recognized and realized that I was lost, I was consumed with this thought I'm going to hell been brought up in church right here right in this very sanctuary every Sunday morning every Sunday night every Wednesday night never missed I couldn't I wanted to so I knew hell is a real place and that's where God judges sinners lost people go to hell so for months it just consumed my thoughts. I thought about it all the time. And I was so anxious and so worried because I realized if something happened to me, if I die, I've told this story many times. I, I, I was a 17-year-old boy, but I would drive really, really slowly, really carefully because I knew if I have a wreck, I'm going to go to hell. And I just struggled with that for months. And, but I was so afraid of what the Lord was going to ask me to do. I was so afraid of what people, maybe my friends would say. I was so afraid of what the Lord was going to ask me to give up. And I just struggle with that, struggle with that. Day in and day out. And I remember it kind of coming to a head and it was just consuming my thoughts. And I was at this service. Our church had this service. They did like these outreach events and they would do music and drama and things. And I was up here at Holly Grove Presbyterian Church. And it was November 25th, 1990. And, and I remember just thinking about my lostness and how I was going to hell. And I was so worried if I yielded and submitted to the Lord what he was going to ask me to do and, and, and what he's going to take from me, what he's going to demand of me. And so I was just holding on to 
my own life, right? And I was my own authority. I wanted to be the authority. I didn't want him to take things away, and I don't want him to demand things of me. But by the grace of God, the Lord did a work in my, my life. And he, on that night, I, I'll never forget it. I remember my aunt was beside me, and um, Leslie Meredith was beside me too. And it seemed like they probably weren't. She could probably tell me otherwise. But it seemed like they were just staring at me, you know, the whole time. And I, I remember, this, like I said, this was three, four months kind of coming to a head where the Lord is just drawing me to himself and drawing me to himself. And, he, and finally, he just, um, the Lord just gave me grace. And I finally came to a point that in my own mind, Lord, I don't care what I have to do. For three, four months, I was just holding on. Like, I don't want to give this up, and I don't want to do that. And I don't want, I'm scared he might ask me to do that, and I don't want to do that either. So I just held on so tightly because I wanted to be the authority. I was the ultimate authority in my life. And finally, I remember coming to the point and saying, you know, Lord, I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what people think, friends or foe. I don't care what they think. I don't care what they say. <laughs> I don't care what you ask me to do. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I'll give up anything. I just want to know you. And I cried out to the Lord in repentance and turned from sin. And he changed my life. He saved me. It was a Saul on the Damascus Road experience for me. Never to be the same. And it's the work of the Lord. It wasn't something I thought through and came up with and just kind of gritted my teeth and got her done. It was all the work of God, breaking a hard heart. And as I read through this story, and I'm seeing these religious leaders, and they want to be the ultimate authority, and they didn't, they didn't see Jesus as worthy of their submission, worthy of their, their, their faith. But God did a work in me, and he brought me to a point where I realized I want to know you. What about you? Have you ever yielded to the Lord? Are you the ultimate authority in your life? Are you hanging on? Well, I want to do this, but I got dreams, and I got aspirations, and I want to do this with my money and my life and my family, and I want to do this and to do that. Maybe you're scared of what the Lord's going to ask you to do. Maybe you're afraid of what he's going to make you give up. Maybe he, you're afraid that he's going to ask you to do something that you never thought you would ever do. You know what? He is going to ask you. He's going to ask you to give up a whole bunch, and he's going to ask you to do a whole lot you never thought you'd ever do. Have you ever yielded to the Lord, submitted to his authority? Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the accolades and the songs being sung. He cleared the temple. Confronted by these religious leaders and he, he showed that he had ultimate authority. Does he have authority in your life?
Will you submit to him today? What are you hanging on to? You can't come to Jesus and, and hanging on to, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. No, he wants all of you. And he wants to be Lord and Savior of your life. Have you ever come to that point where you said, Lord, I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what I have to give up. All I want to do is know you, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes for that to happen. In the Beatitudes, Jesus called that being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Are you poor in spirit? Where you come to a place where you realize it's all... Everything that you have is worth giving up. You're willing to submit to the Lord if you could just know Him. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that You are good and You are the one who gives life. And We know that we we do need You you are life and you are joy and you are peace. Lord, there's so many people here in this room who've been poor in spirit and been broken and have yielded and bowed the knee to Christ. And there's many of us, we can say Jesus is my Lord and he's my Savior. And you do ask us to, to do hard things and you ask us to give up things and little by little, by your grace, you reveal sin to us and you sanctify us and it is a, a, it's like being put on the anvil and sometimes it's difficult, but we're so thankful, so many of us right now, we're just thanking you for the work you've done in our hearts and our lives. And as we read and look at these religious leaders, we can see, yeah, we were hard-hearted like that in our former lives. But we're thankful for your work in us now and what you've done in us. And we aren't what we are going to be, but Lord, we have, we're not what we used to be either. And Father, I pray for those here, whether they're children or, or students or adults, that they, they're like these religious leaders and they're hanging on and they want to be the authority of their own lives and they don't want to yield to Jesus their hearts are hard and cold and toward Christ. And I just pray that you would soften them, that they would see, as I did as a 17-year-old boy, that they would see their sin, that they're in rebellion against you and, and what their sin deserves and what the ultimate price of sin will be. And Father, I pray that you would do a work in children's hearts and students' hearts and these adults' hearts and you would bring them to a point of submission to Christ, being willing to, to give up all and everything for him. Father, break us. Help us to be submissive to you. In Jesus' name, amen.